Well met, dreamer, and welcome to Nocturne, the umbral planet of twilight tales and slumberant songs. Universes are rather large and expansive things. Yet, despite their size, they rarely, if ever, get in one another's way. There are no long lines of universes waiting patiently behind each other and wondering how long it will take to reach the front of the queue and what drink they will order when they get there. Universes are more like hairs on the body of the superverse. There are only very specific places they can be, places where universes currently are, and places where the superverse, in its infinite wisdom, decided to pluck a universe and await the growth of a new one. Each universe has a place, and there is a place for everything eventually. Zoomed out this far, universes are easy to dismiss and mostly go unnoticed by the superverse. However, the location of a universe matters a great deal. Look closer and you'll see that, when located in a dark and shaded area of the superverse, a universe is often colder and slower itself. Similarly, universes exposed to the harshness of the environment around them are more turbulent themselves. Knowing this, one also learns to think not of the universes located in the damp and shoe-covered places of the superverse. Luckily for Nocturne, its universe is placed in a cool and calm spot of the superverse that, against the odds, allowed Nocturne to sit motionlessly next to a giant red sun. Only a lack of planetary rotation allows life to thrive on the cold side of Nocturne. Even a gentle spin would inflict on Nocturne a spit-roast-like fate that would turn the entire surface of Nocturne into a hot mess. As one pulls in closer to the surface of Nocturne, past its many circulating moons that weave in and around one another, all under the guidance of the great moon herself, Saint Cecilia, one will see the gradient of terrains that fade from waste to grassland as one scans from the hot pole of Nocturne to the cold pole. At the hot northern pole, 
it's easy to see that side of Nocturne has faced the sun for many multiple millennia. Up there is a surface of near-uniform heated rock, red-hot at its worst, then fading to a sizzling yellow as one moves towards the center of the globe. At Nocturne's equator, a giant multicolored belt of sand swells and surges with the heat, wind, and of course, the motions of the moons. Made from many different minerals and gems, the many-colored granular waves crest and crash, intermingling to create the infinitely shifting marblesque patterns of the sand sea, all framed by the eternal twilight horizon of a forever setting sun. Further southwards, the motions of the sand sea become calmer and the skies darker. Rocks and the hardy roots of sturdy trees form ever more solid foundations to resist the sand, allowing small flora to grow and vast grass and forest land to spread densely across these cooler parts of Nocturne. The further one goes south, the more they will find those forests have swelled into dense thickets where the grand white light of Saint Cecilia struggles to penetrate. Only the shimmering peak, located at the southmost tip of the world, breaks through. This far south, the trusty compass transitions from an essential friend to a deceiving fraud as the magnetic pull of the world weakens and begins to disagree with itself. Where one's compass turns from friend to foe demarcates the regular wilds of Nocturne from the more dangerous and difficult Far Wilds. Few travel to the Far Wilds, and fewer still return to provide good advice or helpful maps for others to use. So, the Far Wilds have retained an uncommon danger and mystique to the people of Nocturne. Sitting happily between the shimmering peak at the southern pole of the Far Wilds and the crashing waves of the Sand Sea sits the Midnight City, a grand monolith of civilization on Nocturne. Built within the gently sloping crater caused by one of the twin asteroids, those original few who investigated the site found a place cleared of dense trees filled with plentiful colored stones and a clear blue river flowing into the crater and pouring into a lake at its center. With people, resources, and time all flowing into the crater, the city soon became a bustling beacon of well-being and culture on Nocturne. The skyline was quickly punctuated with colorful buildings and moon-silhouetted cathedral spires acting as architectural signposts for the different districts of the Midnight City. Their varied shapes and colors let one know exactly where they were and where they soon could be with a small walk or a quick cycle. The first district of Lavender, 
was built in the center of the crater. Like all districts in the city, it was named after the colored stones found in that area, which were then used to construct the majority of its buildings. It is the home of the Midnight City's oldest institutions, such as the Historians and, of course, the Lavender Minster. Lavender was also unique in that it was always easy to enter but hard to leave by virtue of the shallow hills of the crater surrounding it. Midnight City's river pooled in a lake near the center of Lavender right next to the Minster. Worried that it might get bigger, the residents had rerouted the stream through small canals to avoid water pooling too much or too quickly in one place, and this led to many small fountains and lakes being built around the Lavender District. While water almost always flows downhill on Nocturne, the flow of people is pulled to the places that make them happiest. So, as the city grew, more districts came to be. Farmers moved near the perimeter of the crater so that they could tend to the land more easily. The eccentric and unconventional researchers and inventors of the Society Royal were pulled outwards too after the farmers gifted them their warehouse and silo. Others followed the river outwards so they had easy access to fresh water, and others just wanted to build homes using their personal preference of colored stone. Differently colored locations attracted different kinds of people. The Obsidian District west of Lavender attracted those of a darker, more melancholic disposition, and became the artistic home to a subculture of bards known as the Emotives, whereas the Goldenrod District to the east had a much sunnier and joyous disposition to their music, spawning elaborate dance trends that began there, then spread out across the city. The busyness of the central districts pushed away those seeking quieter lives, who then built homes away from these places and, in turn, created entirely new spaces and subcultures. One such district was the Evergreen District, north of Lavender. Filled with quiet folk inspired by nature, their buildings were made from brownstone and covered in a thick blanket of emerald green ivy that crawled across every home in the district. Its streets were grand catwalks for trees, grasses, and luminous fungi that guided people to different parks and squares tailored to the many moods and needs a Nocturnian might need elevated or comforted throughout their lives. Like the busyness of the Lavender District creating the Evergreen District, opposition to the meandering ways of the Society Royal led to the creation of the more focused methods of the University Celestial, located in the Pearlescent District to the far east of the city. Where the Society Royal was slow to turn ideas into practical tools, 
The University Celestial was built for people who wanted their ideas to be realized quickly. Having been funded by the invention and sale of song lamps, the university used its copiously collected favors and resources to turn ideas into things as a matter of priority. It would then ensure a useful object gets distributed all across Nocturne and that any feedback for their work gets distributed back towards its original researchers for improvement. Nocturne has Yuki Tallo, founder of the University Celestial, to thank for many popular inventions. She invented the song lamp, yes. But in the small years since the university came into being, many smaller song-light-dependent devices had come from her and other labs that originated at the university. By her design, the university concentrated on a small number of labs, supported generously, and managed thoughtfully with that one goal in mind, to make useful things for the future of Nocturne. When founding the university, she chose a site as far away from the Royal Society as she could manage, and as stylistically different from the society as she could imagine. Instead of the ramshackle patchwork of different labs, the university was a compact and simple building made from iridescent pearl-white stone. Inside, the university specialized in simple but large open-plan rooms with light-colored wooden floors. She wanted the place to be as minimal as possible, so there was more space for ideas and more space for its researchers to focus. So minimalist was her lab that, in the early morning, the day after Yuki had visited Nevin at the Lavender Cathedral, Yuki's lab was devoid of even a Yuki. Instead, the three desks near the entrance to her laboratory had only two occupants, both of whom were busy searching through oxblood-colored tomes from the historian's archives. The two were rough mirrors of one another. They were each flanked by two mounds of similarly bound books and used the same system to manage them. Books to be read on the left, and those that have been read to the right of them. They also seemed to share the same hair color, the same dark freckles, the same small upturned noses, and the same slender frames, although with purposeful deviations from one another to hide, as best they could, that they were twins. The taller of the two pushed aside the book they were reading, rubbed their eyes, and then stared blankly into space. He reached for a cold cup of instant moonflower brew, then sipped at it, finding less than they wanted. The smaller of the two looked up from her book, then returned her gaze quickly to the tome in front of her. She repeated this a few times until she realized that she wasn't reading anymore, then stopped completely. 
Taking a miniature break, she distanced herself from her old thoughts by humming a dancing melody. A thin silver thread of songlight unspooled above her and started looping around itself, dancing in a whip-like motion in time with her song. As she hummed, she sat captivated by the movements of the thread and her body swayed rhythmically from side to side as she hummed louder and louder. Then a thin spool of platinum songlight unraveled above her, also moving in time with her song. She looked over at her tall office neighbor to see him humming too. Then a thin spool of platinum songlight unraveled above her, also moving in time with her song. He was also waving his fingers around in a manner of an overexcited and ambidextrous conductor. They hummed with growing gusto as they watched their songlights carom off one another in time with the beat, producing silver and platinum sparks on each hit. Gradually increasing in tempo, the threads of light weave together quicker and quicker, intertwining into a tapestry of songlight that waved along with their song. They weren't doing anything wrong, but feeling like they were having too much fun, they were shocked into a sudden stillness by the clank of their laboratory door closing shut. Falling silent, their songlight tapestry unraveled into nothingness before it could even hit the ground. Removing her hand from the door handle and turning towards the room, Yuki looked at the twins and said, somewhat apologetically, Morning, Felix, Friar. I was hoping to watch you both a little longer. They all chuckled together before Yuki, asking how their search through the historian's tomes had progressed, was interrupted by a short and sharp yelp from the other side of the lab. Yuki spun towards the source of the sound and saw it was accompanied by a flash of golden light coming from the pile of failed devices in the corner of their workshop. The rushed pitter and patter of tiny claws on the hard floor sounded across the room. Then, bursting from behind a workbench and sliding sideways across the floor, drifted a long and low-set furry puppy with a pointy nose and two triangle ears standing to attention. With a determined look in its eye and a bouncing tongue hanging from its mouth, the puppy ran straight towards Yuki. Barking happily, small pieces of jewelry on the puppy's tail and ears lit up a sharp lime green, as did the song lamp collar around its neck. He then slid uncontrollably into Yuki's feet before jumping its two front paws up and onto Yuki's legs. Yuki lifted the pup and noticed it had a small device in its mouth. Ah, oh, Courgette, it's good to see you too, you little spoopy poopy. You like this one? Woof, woof. 
barked Courgette cheerfully, and his earrings shone lime green in response. Yuki walked to her desk and placed Courgette on top of it. She then delicately retrieved the device from the obliging Courgette's mouth. Examining the device and spinning it around in her hands, she asked Freya, the smaller twin, if she knew what it was. Freya, fully engaged in her tomes once again, distractedly told her it was a device that was supposed to only produce white songlight, but it actually only produced brown songlight instead, so off to the reject pile it went. Courgette was now whining uncomfortably from atop Yuki's desk, so Yuki placed him on the floor and gave him her small rub on the head to calm him down. Courgette yipped gently, glowed green at the ears again, then waddled happily over to his basket next to Freya and Felix before snuggling himself away inside of it. With Courgette subdued, the trio caught up on business. Felix, the taller of the two twins, let Yuki know that they didn't find any other reports of songlights at any other places of lunar worship, but there were plenty of records left to trawl through, reminding Yuki that it took them months of searching to find what little they had about the Lavender Minster. Freya confirmed that she had the same experience, with little found and much left to search through. In unplanned unison, the two twins asked excitedly how Yuki's evening at the Lavender Minster had gone. Yuki smiled and raised her eyebrows, provoking the twins even more, before saying, There was a mess of songlight oddities there. I barely know where to start. But Yuki started at the beginning and recounted the evening beat for beat as best she could. She told them about Nevin, the priest that didn't want to sing, that when he did sing, songlights of the oddest presentation presented themselves, and that these oddities were only exacerbated when she hummed a complimentary counterpoint. Both of the twins stared at her with their mouths open in surprise before looking at one another and rolling their eyes in mock shame for their intense moment of twinnery. The minster contained much more than they had hoped for when they first read about a beautiful evening with brilliant songlights at the Lavender Minster from a diary donated to the historians many hundreds of years ago. Songlights in a lunar cathedral were to be expected, but these were singularly unique in their presentation. Yuki let them both know she was going back again tonight, and that she'd need their help to run some experiments there. Felix stood up in delighted approval, but Freya's face was stuck in a mournful hesitation. She soon revealed that she was booked to perform a solo concert tonight at one of the bars in the Obsidian District and wouldn't be able to make any trip to the Lavender Cathedral that evening. 
The room became a little tense at this news. Yuki didn't need both of them tonight, but when she recruited them a year prior into her lab, they had always performed as a duo. Felix looked like one with a lot to say, but no intention of saying any of it. So, Yuki decided against exploring that avenue of inquiry in favor of exploring the songlights at the Minster. Yuki wished Freya the best with her concert that evening and told Felix that they had a lot of planning to do before midnight rolled around. Freya sat reviewing the tomes again and periodically petted Courgette when he asked for attention, while Felix and Yuki reviewed Yuki's notes and planned experiments they wished to perform later that evening at the Minster. Midway through this, Yuki emphasized to Felix that Nevin should not learn what they are doing there, as it could change the exact presentation of the songlights and complicate their work. Felix, taking small umbrage at the advice, told Yuki he knew this was the standard operating procedure and that he'd learnt that lesson in his first study with Yuki and the shy, foot-gazing bards of the Granite District. Sensing his resistance, Yuki clarified that they would be the only people in the room and Nevin would be focusing on them more than any regular bard would usually focus on them. This was especially so because no one has turned up to his hymnal for years. Felix felt sad for the guy. As a former bard, he'd had one or two lonely performances in his time, but... Years of unattended, daily mandated concerts seemed cruel to him. They agreed they would present themselves as interested and satisfied lunar worshippers to Nevin and nothing more. After listing all the appropriate experiments, they then ordered them from most clandestine to the least, agreeing on what could be completed without Nevin knowing what they were really there for. Felix noticed that at least half of what they wanted to try couldn't be performed, with many of those experiments being critical. He asked Yuki how they would perform them. Yuki knowingly tapped the side of her nose with her finger before walking over to the workshop portion of their lab. She picked up a medium-sized box from the shelf of useful devices opposite the pile of failed ones. As she walked the device over to Felix, he thought it looked very much like a song lamp, only bigger and more clunky. Yuki heaved the device onto Felix's desk. It had the words Trapper engraved neatly onto the lid. Yuki opened the lid of the box to reveal an array of metal tubes with small valves placed on top of each tube. For everything else, we have this.
Brendan felt quite alone after failing to find travel companions for a trip to the far wilds. He thought consistently about how much he needed to find one, but little on how to do so. It was less like being stuck between a rock and a hard place, and more like being in a hard place stuck as a rock, waiting for something to dislodge him. The day after, Brendan took a short walk to the office of his good friend and department leader, Chris. This was ostensibly for a catch-up chat, but Brendan also held the lazy hope that somehow she might be able to solve his issue better than he could. He noticed that her sizable log cabin office had received a few upgrades from the engineers, most prominent being a large copper barrel heating system that leaked steam gently from its rivets. It could get pretty cold in the warehouse, so most researchers had a way of keeping themselves warm, but to Brendan, this was very elaborate compared to his scarf and slippers. Chris welcomed him in, and after brewing a few cups of moonflower brew, they caught up on the news of the day. Namely, a composer from the Bards had quite the falling out with the brewers. He had written a paean in tribute to their latest beer, but got the name of the beer wrong. Now, everyone was singing about a legendary new beer that didn't exist and were getting annoyed because no one had it. Brendan steered the conversation towards the issues on his mind, but only managed a stagnant rant. Chris began by offering some polite words of encouragement and ideas for Brendan to try until the third time around when she ran out of patience. Okay, that's enough, Brendan. It's time to call in some of the many favors you're owed. Brendan was stunned at the suggestion. Oh, no, I, I don't wish to impose on others, Chris. Exasperated, Chris reminded Brendan of his extensive helpfulness to the others at the society and the various impositions placed on him over the years, and that was only what she had seen and heard about. She amused that she was probably the only person who didn't owe Brendan a few favors, to which Brendan responded with a courteous bow. Chris ignored this, told him to quit with the schmoozing, and cash in those favors before checking her watch. Chronobol had traveled further than Chris thought since her conversation with Brendan started. She stood sharply and grabbed her backpack and coat, telling Brendan she had an important meeting with the engineers to attend to. Bidding Brendan good luck and goodbye, she rushed out of the door before Brendan could say another word. Alone in Chris's office, Brendan stayed seated and slowly looked around the room by swiveling on the rotating office chair. It took him a minute to admit that she was probably right, and a few minutes more to realize that, in not doing anything about his situation, he was just committing to its wrongness. 
This dissonance chafed at him harder and harder until his reticence to act had worn away. He began recalling all the favors that he could remember. There were all those surveys Brendan completed and distributed to his friends for the social scientists, the specialty yeasts that he had developed for the brewers. Then there were those speed-enhancing scurry-cap mushrooms he'd given to the physiologists before they won the society's interdepartmental orienteering competition last year. Then there were the lunar researchers, who Brendan often supplied kaffir shrooms to when they had a long day of moon-watching ahead of them. The longer he thought, the more he could just keep adding to the list. So Brendan simplified the situation by intuiting which departments owed him the most. Three groups towered above the rest. The cartographers, the ornithologists, and the physiologists. Still, he felt bad to be asking for help. To make it easier, he thought a little present would make each discussion easier. If not for them, then at least for him. Returning to his office, he picked several more kaffir shrooms, placed them in a small pouch, then stored that pouch away in a hip case filled with many other types of mushrooms. Plotting a route in his head, it made sense to go east to the cartographers first, then continue east to the ornithologists, then pop southwards on the way back to see the physiologists. He walked east past the foresters and the herbologists, then soon found himself leaving the naturist zone of the society, then reaching the regimented and organized paths of the engineers with their round copper walls that transitioned into square brown brick buildings and wide straight streets of the cartographers. He soon found a barn door-sized map lit by a warm yellow light from the street-style song lamps. It was a map of the entire cartographer's area, with a glossary of coordinates and names to help one find who they needed. Brendan could see many edits had been made to the map over time. Places and names erased and rewritten which left little white patches all over the map. Brendan wondered where these people were now if they weren't on here anymore. Brendan ran his finger down the list of researchers, looking for any names that he recognized. Many people he thought should be there were missing, but eventually, sitting between Lindsay Masters and Tarquin Meads was one Darius McDare, located at B-15. Brendan had once purchased one of Darius's maps covering the forests east of the city, but he found it was missing landmarks and some of Brendan's favorite routes. So, Brendan hand-delivered a list of edits to Darius a few years back. Darius seemed very grateful at the time, and now it's the gold standard for navigating that area of Nocturne. Surely that would be worth a favor or two on its own. Tired of looking through the glossary, Brendan decided that Darius would be his first port of call. Familiar with the ways of the cartographers, 
Brendan looked down and saw four wooden beams marking out a square, and at the center were wooden letters embedded into the ground spelling out G2. Darius was only a short walk away to the northeast. Using the grid system in the ground, Brendan went east until he reached a floor coordinate that read 15, then went north until he reached B, all the while passing perfectly regimented houses that were aligned with the grid system itself. It was the architectural equivalent of a filing cabinet in that, if one used the system, one could swiftly get what they were looking for, and ignoring it would quickly cause one to become lost amongst the repeating structures and similarly designed buildings. Brendan reached Darius's office without hearing or seeing anyone on the way there, although he could hear the sound of birds from the ornithologist's silo in the distance. Darius's office was much like the other brown-bricked buildings in the area, except it had a small cat flap in the entrance with the words Doodles McDare written above it. Brendan knocked gently on the door, but no one responded. For good measure, he knocked again, slightly louder and slightly longer, but was greeted by silence. Discouraged, Brendan began plotting a route to the ornithologists when he heard a curious meow above him. Looking up, he saw who he could only assume was Doodles McDare, peeking over the edge of the building's roof two stories above him. Brendan meowed back, to which Doodles responded with the complete disregard that only a cat is capable of. Not a fan of being ignored, Brendan removed the hipcase of dried mushrooms and fingered through the pouches inside. He could sense an increased interest from the feline above, but knew better than to acknowledge it now. Brendan always carried some lethigil mushrooms known for their relaxing properties in Nocturnians, but Brendan knew they were far more popular with cats for whom the effect was much more potent. Whole communities of stray felines would gather around a single patch of lethigils, eat them, and then spread the spores as they rolled around and slept the day away. Brendan met the gaze of Doodles and held a chunk of dried lethigil mushroom out in front of him, to which Doodles responded, by lithesomely hopping down various windowsills before landing expectantly at Brendan's feet. Brendan squatted down slowly and open-handedly offered the lethigil to Doodles, who dexterously pinched it from his hand and, now seeing little value in Brendan, fled into the house via the cat flap. Brendan heard a gruff voice shout, Hey, what you feeding me, cat, old man? Brendan blushed a little. The accusation was enough to make him question whether he'd done anything wrong. He winced and mumbled a half-apology before searching for where the voice was coming from. He quickly saw Darius's head peeking over the edge of the roof 
Darius, it's me, Brandon. How are you, old chum? Darius took his time responding to Brandon. Yeah, all right, I'll come down. Brendan heard Darius climb down some creaking stairs before the sound of footsteps approaching the door was punctuated by a loud clacking sound from the door lock. The door opened and a heavily bearded man, who was not so much worn from time as he was worn from overuse, told him to get inside. Brendan entered and saw the room much as he remembered it before. It was dark save for a selection of desk song lamps spotlighting various maps, notebooks, and mug stains spread across an old and chunky dark wood desk. Most of the interior was made of dark wood, but lightened slightly by a thin coating of dust that covered all but the most used areas of the room. Looking closer, he found the room a lot messier than he remembered it. Brendan saw the small kitchen in the corner with a sink full of old mugs and plates, waiting to be cleaned, and a suitcase in the corner of the room, not exactly packed with clothes, so much as just holding on to them for a moment. The place looked much more lived in than last time. It wasn't unusual for researchers to live in their offices at the society, although Brendan didn't understand the approach himself. Darius went to boil some water and small talked with Brendan over his shoulder about not having seen each other for quite some time now. He even thanked Brendan again for his help with the maps. This was music to Brendan's ears. Knowing his previous help had been useful made everything easier to ask. Almost easy enough to actually ask, but he couldn't get the mess in Darius's office out of his mind. Uh, is everything quite all right, Darius? Darius shifted uncomfortably in his seat and crossed his arms. Ah, yes, it's fine. Don't want to talk about it. Ah, fair enough. I'm not one to pry. They sat quietly for a moment when the kettle began to whistle triumphantly at finishing its task. Sensing some stress within Darius, Brendan stood up and offered to prepare the tea himself, perhaps with a pinch of lethigil to ease the mind. Darius was skeptical, but lowered his guard after looking over at Doodles, who was rolling around happily in the corner of the room. He accepted as long as he got less than Doodles did. Brendan smiled and opened his hip case, retrieving more of the dried lethigil and began crushing a brittle chunk into their mugs along with some nettle leaves. Pouring the hot water into the brew, he then brought the steaming mugs over to the table. Sitting down, Brendan felt like he'd earned the chance to discuss his favor. Brendan told Darius that he'd run out of ideas for research and discoveries in the forests around Midnight City, and that he was looking for people to join him for a trip to the Far Wilds. Darius nodded along distantly, as if to try and keep the obvious follow-up question as far away from him as possible. 
Brendan felt the resistance, but pushed through regardless. I hate to impose, but I don't suppose you could join me, or know someone who could? Darius moved awkwardly in his chair again, and looked around the room before answering Brendan. Afraid not, no. Everyone I know is exploring or mapping while the weather's good. Uh, isn't the weather always good, Darius? I suppose. Brendan was growing weary of Darius's caginess. The weather's always about the same. Why be weird about that? Come now, Darius. What about you? You look like you need a good trip. Darius cocked his head at the comment and responded in a challenging fashion. And what do you mean by that? Oh, apologies, Darius. But you seem, um, how can one say this, um, very off. Darius groaned, took a sip of his tea, and began to look around the room again for anything that wasn't Brendan. But his gaze obligingly fell back to him. Ah, fine, fine. Here's the rub. Darius spoke slowly and cautiously at first but began to open up the more he spoke. Darius told Brendan that he had made a map of the Granite District, a very good one at that, at the request of some local establishments. But in his diligence, he added a few locations that would rather have remained secret. These people let him know that, in no uncertain terms, they needed those maps destroyed and redrawn. I got one of their guys helping to get the maps back. Can't leave the city till it's done though. Would be a bad look for me. Cecilia on high? How dangerous are they? Not dangerous, just private. I understand where they're coming from. They'll be owing me a favor by the time it's all done. Brendan could feel himself giving up couldn't bring himself to ask Darius when he might next be free to travel. Trying to cash in this favor felt like grabbing a bar of wet soap. He lamented how difficult his favors seemed to cash in compared to Chris's nice new steam heater. So they moved on to easier topics of conversation. They talked about the other projects Darius was working on and the lives of their shared friends. As they drank more tea, they moved on to more personal discussions. Darius's partner was roaming the forest to the north, looking to find easier routes through to the Sansi. Brendan sympathized as his partner was happily managing public parks in the Evergreen District, although they were so busy in Evergreen that they were just living apart for now. They chuckled at their shared misfortune and made a toast to their partners. May they return with haste and with love. Before clinking their mugs together and draining the last of their tea. As the laughter stopped, Darius mused thoughtfully to himself before saying, Ah, Brendan. I'm real sorry I can't come on the trip with you. That's quite all right, Darius. 
I can see life is quite busy for you. We'll do it another time. No, no, as we say, one good turn deserves another. Otherwise, you'll never get back home. Darius walked over to his disheveled desk and pulled a set of keys from his pocket. Lowering himself to a locked drawer near the floor, he opened it and pulled out a sizable, dirt-covered scroll. Returning to the table, he moved the tea aside and rolled the scroll out across the table. It was a map, and in the center of it, Brendan saw the most unmissable, triangle-shaped landmark, the Shimmering Peak. This was a map of the Far Wilds, mostly unfinished, but it did seem to have a few walking routes that seemed helpful. Darius told him he couldn't give the map to him as it was a valuable collaborative project between many cartographers. But he could make a copy for him, and that if Brendan used it, then he could make some valuable additions to it. Brendan understood that this was quite the generosity, but the map also came with a warning. No sharing, ever. I'll get in more trouble than I am now, and I'll make that your problem. Understand? Brendan wondered whether accepting the map would be worth the risk of owning it in the first place. But he was feeling quite relaxed about things now, so he accepted it graciously. Darius pulled out a fresh piece of parchment, some pens, and cartographer's tools, then began copying the map right in front of Brendan. As he did, Brendan began tidying away anything that had an obvious home and spent some time petting doodles. Once Darius finished, he rolled up the map and handed it to Brendan. The map didn't fit into Brendan's pockets rolled up, so he began folding it. Darius quickly swatted Brendan's hands away and told him to stop before fetching a storage cylinder with a sling and placing the rolled map inside of it. Gotta treat these things with respect, man. Especially when you're right in front of me. Brendan apologized and said his goodbyes to Doodle, who was now napping on a side table next to a large, comfy chair. Stepping out of Darius's office, the two shook hands before reconsidering and then embracing one another in a grateful hug. Thanks for coming by, man. Did me a world of good to see ya. Brendan nodded in agreement, tapped his breast pocket to ensure his hip case was still there, then pulled at the sling around his shoulder to feel the weight of the map in its cylinder. In a half-walk, half-skip, he waved goodbye as he left Darius's office and headed cheerily towards the ornithologists, wondering if all his favors were going to be this much fun to redeem.
Nevin barely slept last night. Too many thoughts and ideas flowed through his mind to let him rest fully. Having Yuki at the lunar hymnal last night was enough motivation for a whole week. Knowing she would be there again today, with friends, re-energized Nevin in a way he had forgotten he could feel. Nevin had spent the earlier part of the day bouncing around the minster, dusting the dust, tidying the untidy, and tending to the plants that circled the minster. It had to look its best now new people were coming. They may not have attended a lunar service before, so the more impressive he could make the experience, the more likely they would be to return. For lunch, he took a short walk under Nocturne's dark skies all the way home to eat a sourdough sandwich filled with pickles and a small slice of mold cheese. He picked up a book that was gifted to him by his mentor from back when he was a young boy studying at the Midnight City's School of Lunarly Learnings for Pre-Priests. It contained scales and vocal exercises to refine one's sound and tone to the purity desired for the lunar hymnal. He used to practice these daily when he started at the Lavender Minster, continuing the habit he developed at school. But he had become complacent in the last few years. Not anymore, though, for life was returning to the Lavender Minster and his performance needed to be as honed as possible. Nevin spent the latter part of the day touring the homes surrounding the Minster. He always did this to check in on the people in the district and help where he could. Some were appreciative and others didn't desire the help at all. But everyone was always cordial to him and his work. Since he could only really visit people during the day, they were, more often than not, out of the house and doing things, just like he was. This loneliness often got to Nevin, but not today. There was simply too much hope for the evening for him to feel down. He also always took a nap in the afternoon, so he was ready and awake for the lunar hymnal come midnight. He slept an extra hour more than usual to make up for the lost sleep the night before and woke up refreshed and ready to perform. The only issue was that there were still many hours left until midnight. He spent the remaining hours restlessly darting between notionally useful self-care and the subtly manic activities of one with something important to do but who is not allowed to do it right now. He picked up the vocal exercises book again to practice, but with his attention wavering and his anticipation growing, he finished them quickly and without much in the way of songlight being produced, then headed out into a brisk strut towards the minster. He spent nary a few minutes walking in the ever-darkness admiring St. Cecilia and her bright lights as they reflected off the water in the shallow canals lining the road and which highlighted the lavender hues of the buildings around him. 
Arriving much earlier than usual and setting up the minster for the hymnal in double-quick time, he was left with too much time and little left to fill it with. Sitting in the pews and reading the lunar liturgy to pass the time, his anticipation swelled with every wind-pushed creak of a door and each overheard voice that passed but did not enter the minster. As time passed as slowly as it could, Nevin's mood started to dip. His excitement for the evening waned and left a hole that was slowly filling with anxiousness. While wondering whether Chronobol had lost its rhythm, he heard another significant creak from the door to the minster. Looking over his shoulder, he saw the small door cut into the great wooden entrance to the minster open. A tall figure stepped through it. He also heard the small percussive tapping of nails on stone and saw that a much smaller and longer figure had entered as well. Standing up, Nevin opened his arms wide above his head and beckoned a loud and hearty welcome towards them. Nevin saw the tall figure cock its head to the side before they waved and walked over to him. Um, to whom do I owe the pleasure? Oh, I'm Felix, and this is Courgette. Courgette barked happily at the mention of his name, and his earrings lit a pleasant green. Nevin paused, as he couldn't remember if pets were allowed in the minster. Today, he chose not to worry. All would be welcome. What brings you to the minster today? I'm Yuki's colleague. We're here for the hymnal. And are any of your friends coming? Only Yuki. My sister would have come too, but she's playing at a concert tonight. So gracious of you to come here instead of seeing your sister. You content me and the moons with your presence here today. Another creak came from the entrance, and Nevin saw Yuki step slowly and heavily through the door. She had a large satchel hanging off one shoulder that she didn't have with her last time. Nevin figured she must have just come from work and had plenty to carry. How dedicated! Yuki waved to them both as she walked over to them. Placing a hand on Felix's shoulder, she asked, Felix! I thought I asked for you to wait outside for me. Courgette was shivering, so I thought it would be best to come inside. And did you and Nevin have a nice chat? Said Yuki, in a manner that seemed odd to Nevin. We were just saying hello. Yuki stared intensely at Felix before relaxing her grip on his shoulder. Excellent. And how are you feeling tonight, Nevin? A little too excited. I, I think I prattled on a little too long to your friend here. No worries. I'm sure you'll do great tonight. With her hand on Felix's shoulder, she guided him to the pews nearest the altar and sat him down. Nevin thought they were being a little odd, but his excitement was building again. Now people were here. It was close to midnight, so he asked them to sit before he walked past the moonlight pool and up to the altar. He had plenty of time before he needed to start, 
but the extra time became less and less helpful the more he stewed in it. His thoughts turned away from the hymnal and towards his two new guests. There was something odd between them. Maybe they argued earlier in the day. He could feel how distracted he'd become, so he turned his focus back to the hymnal as best he could. Yuki was annoyed at Felix for deviating from their plan and absent-mindedly set her bag down loudly with an echoing thud as it hit the ground. Felix and Nevin both looked at her and she raised her hand apologetically. Then Felix and her spoke in hushed but urgent tones about their plans for tonight. In response, Felix pulled out his notebook and pen so they could talk through the plan together. But Yuki shook her head and pushed Felix's hands back into his pockets. This all served to unsettle little Courgette, who started huddling underneath Yuki's pew. With his long, furry body pressed against the wooden feet of the pew, he let out a panicked trio of barks accompanied by a sharp red light from his earrings. The barks bounced off the walls and phased across one another, filling Nevin's ears with a harsh, pulsing sound. He turned around to see Felix, Yuki, and Courgette in a petrified state. An unsettled Courgette was cramming his furry butt to the underside of the pew. Yuki was fumbling all over Felix, and Felix was sitting awkwardly with his hands stuffed in his pockets, his face glowing a bright shade of Celeste. It had been some time since Nevin had done a hymnal with this many people present. He was certain about what was demanded of those attending. Reverence to the occasion, and, most importantly, not disrupting his preparations. Yuki? Felix, I'm glad you're both here today, but the lunar hymnal is a solemn and calm occasion. Do you understand? Felix and Yuki nodded remorsefully in response, then sat straight and proper in their seats, with Courgette following their lead. Nevin turned back around to face the altar and continued his preparations for the ceremony. He tried to regain his focus, but he had become quite disappointed now at how the evening was going. It was too loud, too distracting, and too many things were just not going how they should. It wasn't even close to what he had hoped for earlier in the day. Nevin was glad to hear the chiming of the minster's midnight bell so he could move on from all the waiting he had to do today. So keen was he to start, he walked around the altar and hurriedly started the ceremony. Welcome, uh, welcome, one and all, and thank you for your presence here tonight. We are here to honor and enrich our lunar matriarch, Saint Cecilia. We ask that you give what you can so we may continue the great traditions of the uh, Lavender Minster. Yuki, who thought Nevin seemed a little off his game today, then noticed the collection plate near her, but didn't have the presence of mind to think of putting anything into it. Take solace in the hymnal, and may your peace echo beyond the moons. 
Nevin then stepped forward from the altar and down the small set of stairs into the shifting lights within and around the moonlight pool. He breathed in and tried to relax, sensing the subtle warmth of the moon's light on his pale blue skin. As he focused on that first tone of the hymnal, he closed his eyes as he normally would, but caught a momentary glimpse of Yuki moving her hands towards her satchel, just before he could fully shut out the world around him and start singing. Instead of the first tone of the hymnal ringing through his mind, it was a distracting curiosity where he wondered, what was Yuki doing? Before he could regain his focus, Nevin began the hymnal, just not quite how he remembered it. It wasn't how Yuki remembered it from last night either, but she had a job to do today. When she saw Nevin close his eyes, Yuki had opened the satchel and then opened the lid to the trapper she'd brought with her. Pressing a few buttons to engage the device, she then pulled out a small notebook with all the tests and observations she wanted to do today. But as Nevin sang, no song lights formed around him or anywhere in the minster. She and Felix waited patiently for something to happen, but the air remained as it did before the hymnal began. She turned to Felix, who looked back at her as if to say, This isn't it, is it? Yuki made a small gesture, raising her hands in the air to say, I don't know. They sat and watched, looking for any sign of the lights they so wanted, but nothing came. To Yuki's eyes and ears, Nevin had now returned to the hymnal performance she'd heard last night, but no song lights appeared still. She began to fidget impatiently, dragging her toes on the floor and then rocking her feet back and forth from toe to heel. As the hymnal progressed, Yuki lost hope that they might observe or obtain anything useful this evening. Pocketing her notebook, she gestured to Felix for him to do the same. Yuki was closing the lid to the trapper when her elbow knocked into Felix's, who then dropped his pen on the floor, shocking Courgette into a surprised bark. The commotion jerked Nevin out of the hymnal. And, having not even got close to finishing, he was consumed by a confused disgust at the interruption. He thought that one must simply sit and listen to the hymnal. How hard is that? Before he could think twice, Nevin chastised them in a wavering but demanding voice. Now, come on, you three. This is really not on. It's the hymnal for Cecilia's sake. Sorry, we, we didn't mean to. Nevin raised his hand and Yuki stopped speaking. Regaining his composure, Nevin then said, No, no, it's, it's okay. I, I'm sorry I stopped. You know, this means a lot to me. I know, we just... Nevin raised his hand again. We could talk about it, I... Just need to redo this, though. I 
prefer it if you three could wait outside while I finish. Yuki didn't want to do that. Not even a little bit. But she felt she had no right to ask anything of Nevin right now. Both her and Felix's faces were glowing in embarrassment. Nevin saved Yuki the trouble of responding by firmly saying, We can talk outside when I'm done. The three of them obediently packed their items and removed themselves from the minster, closing the small entrance door behind them and leaving Nevin inside and in peace. They walked a little ways from the minster with Courgette closely following Felix and stopped near one of the small canalways at the edge of the square surrounding the minster underneath the warm but flickering light of a song lamp Yuki had sung to yesterday evening. They heard the muffled harmonies of the hymnal reverberating out of the minster and turned to face the grand spires and octagonal tower of the lavender minster. Its windows were now glowing a soft celestine shade that pulsed bright and dim with the cadences of the hymnal. Yuki closed her eyes and breathed out in a simmering frustration. She was matched by Felix, who put a hand to his forehead and dragged it down his face, gently pulling against his skin as he did. Looking at one another, they softened a little. Felix broke the tension first, saying, We are pretty stupid. Yuki's mouth curled up into the corner of her face. She couldn't disagree, but she wasn't happy about it in the slightest. Yes, the stupidest. <laughs>